So here we are, and uh, you know, it's the beginning of the ministry year, and so I thought we would take just a break from Ephesians and turn to a topic that is of great relevance for all of us as we begin again a new ministry year. It's good to be centered and to be reminded of old truths, but important truths. And as we begin together, that's what I want to do with you this morning. And uh, I have a lot of time in the bank, I believe. But knowing that the Awana has a sign up and we need to announce the business meeting and so forth, I'm going, to, I'm going to be disciplined this morning and not hold you because I've got about an hour and a half worth of material. So we'll just have to do what I always do when I have too much. Bring it up, right? So anyway, open your Bibles up to uh, the 10th chapter of Mark's Gospel. So this, this centering message is entitled, The Way Up is Down. The way up is down. I preached this message here in this pulpit more than a decade ago, I believe. And so um, there are a number of you who are new in that time, and the rest of us have poor memories. And so it's appropriate, I think, to bring it again. The way up is down from Mark chapter 10. And we'll be looking in particular verses 35 to 45. And again, we'll have to probably break that up over a couple of weeks. Some, uh, some time ago, I saw an advertisement in an issue of World Magazine for a home study curriculum that was uh, supposed to make you a more effective conversationalist. If you bought this material, the ad went and, and went through it and so forth. It would make you a more effective conversationalist. And the basic advertising pitch was is that good conversationalists get ahead in life. That it's, it's more easy to impress people when you open your mouth and, and you speak intelligibly. And, and that's certainly true. That was my experience in the business world many years ago. People with stunted vocabularies or annoying speech patterns uh, didn't get promoted. And so there's, a, there's some truth to the reality of that. That uh, when you open your mouth, you, make a, you create an impression on people. And the ability to speak well creates generally favorable impressions. But this morning I want to talk to you not about how to be a good conversationalist and how to get ahead in the world, but instead I want to talk to you about how to, how to achieve greatness in the spiritual realm. How to be great in the spiritual realm. So as we begin together, let's just think about a few questions. So for example, how does one advance into positions of leadership in the church? Maybe that's a question that has revolved around in your mind. How, how do you advance into positions of leadership? How, do, how does that come about? Is it by utilizing the tried and true methods of corporate America? You know, academic degrees, family connections, good office politics, Spending a lot of time on the job, self-promotion. You, you guys and gals, you know what I'm talking about. That is how you get ahead in the business world often, and it's a very unfortunate thing. But is that how we get ahead in the kingdom of God? Is that how we advance in the kingdom of God to positions of leadership? Of course, you know the answer to that. It's no. It's not just no, it's absolutely no. There is another means, another method And as with most things in the kingdom of God, it is diametrically opposed to the kingdom of this world. 
You get ahead in the world in one way, and if you practice that in the kingdom of God, it actually is detrimental. We advance in the kingdom of God in terms of leadership in the exact opposite way that unfortunately we've come to learn through much of our life. Humility is the key to greatness. Humility is the key to greatness among the people of God because God has firmly set himself against the proud. He has set himself against the proud. The Proverbs say in Proverbs 16 and verse 5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. He who is proud in heart is an abomination to God. Or as James says in James chapter 4 and verse 6, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And he is not just mildly opposed, he is actively and vigorously opposed to the proud, but gives his grace abundantly to the humble. The greatest man to ever live in the Old Testament was also the most humble. Moses, and interestingly, writes of himself in Numbers 12 and verse 3, and some think, well, that immediately would disqualify him, but the inerrant An authoritative and inspired word of God is just the opposite. Moses pens this about himself. He says, now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Can you imagine God saying that about you? More humble than any man on the face of the earth. Think about Moses with me. He began his life in obscurity. He rose to prominence in the greatest empire of his day. And then he was humbled for 40 years in the desert. And out of that desert experience, God raised him up to become the deliverer of his people Israel. And a type of Christ to come. Moses' whole life, if you think about it, was an amazing display of humility. When God was setting up his earthly kingdom there with the Israelites at Mount Sinai and assigning out positions of authority and prestige, poor old Moses' sons were overlooked. It was his brother Aaron and his sons who were given the high priesthood in perpetuity. Moses' sons labored in obscurity. This would often grate a man, but apparently not Moses, the most humble man to ever live. The Scriptures speak of our own Savior, Jesus And he referred to himself as gentle and humble in heart. Humility is the key. Humility is the key. So from this text before us this morning here in Mark chapter 10, 
we will see three unalterable truths about the path of greatness in God's church so that we will understand the need for servant leadership here at Foothill. Three unalterable truths about the path of greatness in God's church so that we will understand the need for servant leadership here at Foothill. Let me give them to you up front. You can mark them down if you like. The first is this. The first unalterable truth is the request for greatness is serious. The request for greatness is serious. Secondly, the requirement for greatness is suffering. The requirement for greatness is suffering. And third, the road to greatness is service. The road to greatness is service. Now, let's set a little background here. Again, we're going to pick it up in verse 35 through 45, but a little bit of background. The context here is that Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jericho, and during his final trip and approach to the city of Jerusalem. This is at the end of Jesus' public ministry. He's had his time alone in the north with the disciples to prepare them for his departure. And now he is making his final approach to the city where there he will offer himself officially and formally to them as their great messianic king. And along the way, Jesus is starting there up at Mount Hermon and then Following along from that, repeatedly Jesus has begun to talk very openly about his crucifixion, about what kind of reception he is going to receive in the capital city when he gets there. And the disciples at this point are still obtuse about all of this. They don't really get it. You can see in verses 32 to 34 where it says they were on the road going to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. They don't get it, not really. Often they intervene to rebuke him when he raises such kinds of notions because it is so foreign and contrary to what they think should happen and is going to happen. So they don't understand, but yet they do understand something. They they have a sense that, that this is going to be the big moment, the big event. And so, sensing that, and and I think sensing that that the establishment of his kingdom is near, they begin jockeying for position to see who can strike first to gain their own share of the coming glory. So they've missed out on what Jesus is really saying to them, yet they do have an idea that something big is going to happen, and if we're going to make a move, now's the time. And so that's exactly what happens. Here, in verses 35 to 45, James and John make their move. They make their move. And it's interesting, and, and, and Jesus, of course, responds to that, and we'll look at that here in detail in the next, as we go. 
But it's not just James and John, so unless we think too badly of them. Because Luke tells us in his gospel, in Luke 22 and verse 24, that there Thursday night, the night of, the, of his last supper, they're at the dinner table still arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. So even after the teaching that Jesus gives them here, the rebuke that he gives them here, they still, they don't get it. And so they're still bickering like children at the table, who does daddy love most? They're angling for something. They're they're trying to carve out their own kingdom. It's incredible. The level of petty selfishness that is on display here by his followers who have spent three years with him. And yet this is what basically, right, the mouth speaks out of the, what? Out of the heart, this is what's deep inside. What's in it for me? How do I carve it out? How do I get ahead? Staggering. Jesus' heart and mind has got to be filled with the emotion of what's coming, the heaviness of what's coming. It must have cut him to the quick. I've been with you so long. I've taught you so much. I've I've demonstrated truth to you over and over again. And here you are, seeking to carve it up like some kind of a trophy. But lest we be too hard on them, are we ourselves not often guilty of the same kind of approach? the same kinds of attitudes, I think more often than we care to admit, we approach leadership and authority and responsibility in the church as a prize to be obtained for our own glory. Let us read, beginning in verse 35. James and John... The two sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But... But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. 
But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Three unalterable truths about the path of greatness. Number one, the request for greatness is serious. Verse 35, James and John. James and John, two sons of Zebedee, they came up to Jesus and asked him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. These are members of Jesus' inner circle. Careful reading of the gospel accounts indicates that there was a series of, of circles of the 12 disciples. That is, that, that there were some that were closer to him than others. Some spent more time with him than others. Some even postulate, if you read carefully the, the pairings, the listings of disciples through the gospels, you might actually be able to see them as they sat in the boat and rowed, that they were rowing partners. But in any case, there is the inner three, Peter, James, and John. These are Jesus' closest disciples. These are the ones who received special treatment, really not that long before this account, just a matter of a few weeks. They were the ones that Jesus invited with him to go up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. There, according to Mark 9 and verse 2, Peter, James, and John experienced Christ in his glory, where he he peeled back his flesh, as it were, and they saw and heard the heavenly majesty, right? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It was an amazing experience that they had encountered here. And so there is a sense in which they are already a cut above or a step above the other disciples, having been invited, not just this time, but on numerous occasions, into a closer and more intimate relationship with Christ. Additionally, Matthew tells us in his parallel account in Matthew 20 that it was their mother who actually came initially and acted as their spokesman. It was mom who first came and made the request. And this is interesting because it's, it's likely that their mother uh, was the sister of Jesus' mother, Mary, making James and John first cousins of Jesus. If that's true, then, then basically you've got an aunt approaching her nephew on behalf of her sons with this request. Again, maybe she thought the family connections, you know, it's always good to have connections. So let's take advantage of these family connections and make this request. So she comes, and they come with her. She gets the ball rolling, and, you know, then they chime in. Yeah, that's it. That's what we're asking. And notice the request here. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I mean, it reminds me, actually, of a child, right? Daddy, if I'm good, will you buy me whatever I want? 
No. If you're not good, there will be consequences. How's that? But what they're asking here is what's known as a monarch's favor. A monarch's favor. It's a, it's a sort of a blank check. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, a wise king would, would put a limit on these kinds of things, the answer to these kinds of questions. Certainly, in, uh, in Mark 6, 23, we see there where Herod, to the, to the dancing girl, right, she wants him to do whatever, and he says, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. And that was, you know, in the context there, culturally, that was sort of the way the back and forth would go. It's not, they're not actually going to give you half the kingdom. Okay, you don't get that. But they would put this limit on it. Yes, I will grant your request up to half my kingdom. Can't have the whole thing. But notice how Jesus responds to them. He says to them, what do you want me to do for you? He doesn't fall into their trap. He doesn't say, sure. Sure, what, what, what do you want? Can you do me a favor? Sure. That's, all, that's not a good idea, by the way. Someone says, can you do me a favor to just say, sure, and then you're going, oh. what favor do you want? Then I'll tell you whether I can do it. What do you want me to do for you? So he, won't, he doesn't fall into the trap here, but, but, but notice this also. He, he refuses to assume the role of a ruling sovereign. He sidesteps it. Because if he had answered them and said, you know, whatever you want, up to half my kingdom, whatever, then, then he would be acting in the role of an earthly sovereign here, and, and that would be contrary to the message that, that he has been proclaiming, that he is, the, he is the humble, suffering servant come to die. Is he the, the ruling sovereign? Is he the Lord of all? Absolutely. But he must go through the cross to come back to to the Father's right hand. And so here Jesus avoids the trap. Beyond that, Jesus' counter-question to them sort of draws out James and John and enables the true nature of their desire to be displayed. What do you really want? You know, Look at it. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus draws it out. What do you want? We want power. And we want prestige. That's what we want. And so they answer, verse 37. They said to him, Grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. That's not too big a request now, is it? I mean, we just want the two top seats in the kingdom. They'd seen his glory. At the transfiguration, they evidently were quite confident that he was going to, to unveil that glory, to reveal that glory to all the nation of Israel there in Jerusalem. I mean, that's got to be why he's going. Notice this is not uh, just a simply requ a request to be near him at the moment of his triumph. It's not that Jesus... You've been with us so long. 
we have grown to love you and to, and to worship you, and we are so committed to you. We just don't want to be away from you. So, so will you grant us the, 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 the blessed privilege of just being at your left and right hand at all times? No. Jesus, we want the number two and number three seats in the kingdom. That's what we want. Not bad, by the way, coming from a couple of Jewish fishermen, don't you think? They want the, the post of Grand Vizier. Big dog. It was ambition, not loyalty, that motivated their request. And again, think about this. It's, in one sense, at an earthly level, it's, I suppose, a natural extension of the family relationship. After all, they're first cousins. And that's how it's done. They're first cousins. They're part of the inner three. They've been moving up the ladder here, right? They've got the connection. They've got family connections. It's obvious we're doing a good job, right? The boss is, is always bringing us along with him on, you know, important missions, and so it just would be the natural thing for the natural heart to say, okay, let's just take it all the way to the finish line and grant us the top jobs. We just want to be executive vice president and senior vice president of the new corporation. That's all we're asking. By the way, it's common both in, in uh, Asian, um, ancient Asian culture to, to extend leadership to family members. It's even, common, it's even common in our culture, right? It's family businesses, right? You get a small family business, you know, who are the officers of a small family business? It's always the extended family, right? Why? Well, because you can trust them and you can control them. So that's sort of the approach, and, and that's what they're asking for here. Now, we can be very sure here that, um, that the motivation of all of this is, is a sinful ambition. And I think one of the ways we can be sure of that is that they don't ask for a place of prominence for anybody else. They don't say, well, Jesus, when you, when, you, know, when you, when you come in your kingdom, our, uh, our friend here, uh, Philip and, and Bartholomew, you know, they've been doing a really good job. Maybe you've not observed all the time, but we've been work, we've, their work ethic is really good and you know, when it's out evangelizing, they're always the first ones there and so forth. Nothing. Nothing. They don't ask on behalf of Matthew and Thomas. They don't ask for anybody on behalf of anybody but themselves. Numero uno, right? They're looking out for number one. This is such a vivid illustration of human nature. Right? People want to start out in the boardroom. But they need to start out in the mailroom. But how many times? Right? Sure, I'd love to work for your company. Let's talk about benefits. Not how I'm going to benefit you, but how you are going to benefit me. That's our approach. 
We see it as well in the, in the way in modern Western Christendom, the way we, we elevate the celebrity status, new converts. We've got to have this uh, idea, if somebody is successful in one aspect of life, then that clearly qualifies them to be a, in a place of authority and leadership among the people of God, right? Hey, a successful businessman, they've got to be a great elder. Or if you're an entertainer, like a musician, you know, or you get saved, you're now the spokesperson for the gospel in the church because why? Everybody wants to listen to you. You're famous. And yet Paul says in the qualifications of leadership among the people of God in 1 Timothy 3 and in verse 6, he says that the elder is not to be a new convert lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Charles Coulson says, Power is like salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. Power is like salt water. The more you drink of it, the thirstier you get. Beloved, it is a very, very serious thing to seek out leadership, greatness among the people of God. It is not something to be avoided lest your motives are corrupt. Again, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, If a man aspires to the office of elder, it is a noble thing he desires to do. So there is a, a place where the Bible clearly makes plain to us that, that seeking leadership among the people of God is a good and noble thing. But it's about the motives. It's all about the motives. I think looking at the clock that we would be well served not to begin to go forward from here. Those that work among the child care would bless our hearts. And so we may serve them this morning by finishing even perhaps a little early and that only puts more time in the bank for me. And I can always use that. So let's just think about this as we begin here, this new year. I don't want to scare everybody off. The right application that is serving is not for everybody to turn in your resignations, right? So all you small group leaders, we're not saying, okay, you know, turn in your resignation at the back door. We're not saying that at all. What we are saying, though, is that it is a serious thing that you're stepping up to do. Gentlemen, husbands and wives, as you seek to serve and lead among God's people, may you do so this year with a heart of humility. And may God grant me and the other elders humility as well. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Our Father, 
Scriptures then say, so humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and in due time he will exalt you. O Lord, may you help us to shed the worldly values that have been taught to us since childhood, that we have observed repeatedly in both school and in the business place. We see it among our politicians. We see it among our business leaders. We see it even in the academic environment, the jockeying, the backstabbing, the the manipulations, the family connections, the agitation. People clamor to the top of the heap. And our Father, we confess that all too often, even although we would not overtly see that we're doing so, we subtly bring this garbage into the church. Find ourselves scheming, thinking, politicking, whispering, preening, Lord, how ashamed we are when we're called out, when your Spirit calls it out to us, how ashamed we are. Oh, Lord, as we begin this ministry year together, as a fellowship, as a a body of believers, as a family of God, may you help us renew our effort in the power of the Spirit of God to reject these worldly things that are the exact opposite of what you would have. For as Jesus says in verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served. If anyone deserved to be served, it was him. And yet as Paul says in In Philippians 2, he humbled himself, took the role of a bondservant all the way to death on a cross that he might save our souls. May the pattern of his life move us to emulate. We ask for his name's sake. Amen.